Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. This is Dinah Pulver with the Daytona Beach News Journal. I'm the environment writer and one of the writers working with Gatehouse Media Project on sea level rise in Florida. We will be doing a series of stories over the next year. And joining us today to talk about this first story we have running this weekend is Clay Henderson, who is the executive director of Stetson University's Institute for Water and Environmental Resilience. And he's also a waterfront resident here in Volusia County. So Clay, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in sea level rise. Well, I'm happy to be here and uh, good to talk about this uh, issue. I've, I've had the Indian River Lagoon as my front yard for uh, well over 30 years and get to watch it rise and fall with the seasons and with the weather. Uh, the seawall out in front of our house was built uh, in 1902 and uh, only time until recently where water would come out of the banks would be for a hurricane or tropical storm or some of those crazy nor'easters we get in the fall. But the last couple of years on bright sunny bluebird days we've seen the water just come right out of the banks uh, come a th- come a few feet over uh, grass dies vegetation dies and uh, that's an indication that something is happening and so when it's happening in your front yard it gets your attention and what do you think you have to look forward to well the, the more that uh, I've looked into the issue and spoken to our colleagues and uh, spoken to a number of experts uh, what we're seeing is that the rate of increase of sea level rise has increased uh, over the last couple of decades uh, we uh, have changed from just a millimeter or so annual change to now upwards to about of a third of an inch per year uh, we're we we can see visible changes now. We're going to see the more visible changes uh, in the future. So uh, this is going to be the new normal. And you've got children who could inherit your property. What do you think they have to look forward to for that street there on the Indian River? Well, I think a lot of us that live uh, at five foot of sea level think about uh, think about the future that way. Eighty uh, percent of uh, Florida's uh, residents live within uh, about fifteen miles of the coast. Uh, this is going to affect everyone. It's going to affect, uh, it'll actually affect people who live inland before it affects those of us on the coast. Because where we see uh, nuisance flooding now is in interior areas where the water just can't get out. Uh, and so uh, that's where we're going to see the impacts uh, first. And you've got someone at Stetson who's been working on looking into how that's going to impact residents across the southeast or the entire country, actually. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, we, um, we've we looked at our issues or interest areas of our faculty uh, and come into a few different areas, and one of them is sea level rise, and it's primarily because uh, of the leadership of uh, Dr. Jason Evans, who was a new professor with us here at Stetson. Uh, he got his training at the University of Florida and went on to was part of a public policy institute at University of Georgia, and he has been very interested in sea level rise and has been studying it on the 
ground level uh, all along the east coast of Florida, but primarily in the Keys and in South Georgia. Uh, he and some of his colleagues at the University of Georgia published uh, a, a, an article last year that ran in Nature Climate Change that got worldwide attention because it was able to demonstrate the millions of people who are going to be effect, affected by this in our lifetimes and the billions of dollars that's going to cost to the public. And it's time that we start to get get focused on that. And so we're, we're glad that uh, Jason is there and leading uh, our efforts in this area of interest. Uh, that's something that's going to be very important to the state. And that is the the numbers that they came up with in that study are part of the sea level rise series that starts on Sunday, or that's actually already available online. We look at some of the millions that are projected to be affected in the different counties around Florida specifically. Yeah, it's millions and billions. And I was thinking about something on the way here. The story of the last few days has been about the large uh, break off of uh, ice along the northern peninsula of uh, Antarctica. And to put it in perspective, the size of that iceberg is basically the size of Volusia County. If you think about that, then give it. It's, this is not a small event. This is a historic event. No, it's just a few kilometers short of being as large as the state of Delaware. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really large. And it, while it was already floating, so it's not directly adding to sea level rise, they they talk about how the potential for other icebergs breaking off and opening up an avenue for all the other land-based glaciers to move toward the ocean, which could increase sea level rise. Over time, we're going to see more of these types of events, and that is going to have a cumulative effect. And that's part of what Jason's study looked at. It's part of the NOAA study that we quote in the in the in the article "Rising Seas." We talk a fair amount about this work that NOAA has done to decide how different parts of Florida could be affected, or how different parts of the country will be affected by Greenland melt and any melt from part of the Antarctica. Okay, so we are going to call Jim Murley, and Jim Murley is worth the Miami Dade, and he has been one of the early leaders for planning and preparing for sea level rise in South Florida, and Jim has agreed to speak with us this afternoon. Okay, so Jim, we, we're, we're joining in the studio here with Clay Henderson. We've just been talking about how Clay got interested in sea level rise. One of the reasons he's personally interested is because he lives right there on the Indian River. How, what are you seeing in South Florida? Well, uh, you know, sea level rise is um, sort of the background uh, phenomena for a lot of the uh, changes in our shoreline that we're experiencing. Certainly the king tides in the fall um, are uh, noticeably higher and um, more broad spread than they've been in the past. And uh, we've been um, watching the uh, tide gauges and uh, the effect of the uh, drainage uh, canals, uh, especially in South Bay, because those old uh, canals were all built to drain by gravity and sometimes at a high tide, uh, that is elevated a little bit by the sea level, um, we're not getting as much drainage. And that is, that's causing all kinds of problems for all sorts of areas down there in South Florida. Is that correct? Well, I, I think you have to put it in context. I mean, these are events. These are not, you know, this is not every day you wake up and exactly. flood in front of you. Uh, these are... I mean, the sea level is still going up to millimeters per year. It's not uh, nearly as threatened to us as a storm surge uh, 
or that you know the you could get a high tide event at the same time you have a storm offshore and then that's going to be accelerated Right, so, so in, the, in the fall full moon high tides, when I'm not sure everyone's familiar with those king tides, but these are fall high tide events when the moon is full, correct? That's right. And what are you doing there with Miami-Dade government? When did they bring you in? I was brought in when they uh, transformed our existing office of sustainability to uh, repurpose it as the office of resilience, and that was in November of 2015. And so, and so we're go ahead. Go ahead. What's the plan? Well, uh, our plan is to continue the work we were doing in sustainability, which is to track our goals of reducing greenhouse gases, which obviously is an issue all around the world these days. Uh, but in, in, I think an important turn was for the county itself to decide that this um, long-term issue of sea level rise was something they couldn't wait for somebody else to sort out. They were going to work on it uh, specifically. We were had the advantage of a outstanding partnership we have with our neighboring counties called the Southeast Florida Climate Change Compact. And uh, we're all collectively and individually doing things to anticipate these uh, the change in, in sea level rise. It translates to us as a metropolitan county government uh, our initial focus has been on our large infrastructure investments. And in particular, we're under direction uh, uh, for a number of reasons to have major upgrades in our water and sewer systems. And our treatment plants for our sewer system were you know, placed on bare islands. 50, 50 years ago, nobody saw a problem with that. Well, now we understand the long-term consequences. And while we're planning to build new ones in one, we obviously have to be sure the existing ones operate. So they're being upgraded, and the design and engineering and construction of those uh, large-scale infrastructure facilities are taking into consideration both sea level rise and storm surge. And I'm guessing those aren't inexpensive. No, the whole process in this entire county, which are, um, again, our charter county is in charge, responsible for water and sewer, so it's a $10 billion multi-year upgrade, and we're estimating right now that they're spending approximately about a little over $50 million more to to ensure that the resilience uh, dividend is, is in place. And we don't want to regret the, the opportunity present, that's presenting itself now that we have to take advantage of with the best information we have. Thank you. Clay, do you have questions? Jim, you know, we've been seeing uh, increases in nuisance flooding all up and down the East Coast. Uh, what is, uh, as you said, this is all event-driven. About how many times a year are you experiencing uh, these types of events? Well, it varies, Clay, where you are in the county. Uh, out on the Barrier Islands, um, uh, you know, I think it's probably we're gradually getting in the spring tide and the, uh, the high tides in the spring and the fall. And if you happen to get a heavy rain event simultaneously, then, you know, you've got ultimately the issue of how that combined flows of volumes of water are going to be handled with stormwater. So I'm guessing it's probably, you know, it, it, it varies, but it's probably 6 to 12 times a year. And that's consistent with what we've been seeing up and down the East Coast, uh, some places uh, a little bit more. Yeah, and if you... Again, you know, we uh, experienced in the last 10 years, we've had two storms that traveled from south to north 
200 miles off our coast, including one that damaged yours last year, a lot worse than ours. But even those, you know, the movement of the ocean, the swells and the surge, it, it caused damage during that event. Well, that's true. And we saw uh, along the northeast coast of Florida historic uh, storm surge levels. Uh, the, 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 at, uh, for Matthew, the mm-hmm. uh, surge in St. Augustine uh, got up to around nine feet, uh, flooding all the way into US 1. That's, of course, a city that's been around 450 years. So when you say it's a historic event, it really does mean something. Uh, also true up at Fernandina, uh, where they've had uh, tide gauges in effect there since the 19th century and the 11 foot surge seen there was the, the highest that they've ever recorded yeah and and they had they were a lot closer to the eye in the storm surge uh, itself than we were so um I think that maybe it's a precursor. I think people can sort of look at some of the high tide flooding that occurred with the hurricane and think, gee, if it's this bad now, what might a hurricane bring in another 30 years? Well, of course, that's, you know, you, you, there's a lot of hypothetical situations that are based on good data, uh, but we're still projecting them and, you know, we're still using models to try to combine the effect of sea level rise with those storms. And we know what a heavy storm event can be, a catastrophic storm like Andrew, and uh, it's a, that event becomes a lot more than just surge, it's wind and everything else. So, um, you know, we've been pretty lucky in Southeast Florida generally that we have not had a direct hit now for over 11 years, so we're due. That's something we all have to think about from time to time, for sure. And, Jim, as, as we go forward, one of the next things we'll be talking about in our series is preparing for the coming sea level rise. And South Florida has been a leader with your Southeast Florida Climate Compact. Do you think other areas of the state are going to be coming on board and, and launching similar efforts? Well, I know there's interest uh, in the Sarasota Brainton area. I spoke recently uh, at the uh, at New College, and there was quite a few uh, citizens and elected officials that um, asked a lot of good questions. Recently, heard that the Tampa Bay area mm-hmm. uh, continues its interest. Uh, Northeast Florida, the Northeast Florida Regional Council has has been a, a, a promoter of, of uh, discussions in their community. It's, you know, we're not getting um, too much leadership from the state level on this. There's some of the agencies that are help, helpful and technical assistance, but it's pretty much the regions and individual counties and cities uh, working with their stakeholders, private sector, and uh, even broader than that to, to try to deal with these issues. That's what we're seeing here as well, Jim. Okay, well, I promised you only a few minutes, so we appreciate your time. Thank you for talking with us, Jim, and look forward to talking with you as we continue to look at this issue over the next year. Well, thank you, and uh, congratulations on the article I received today. It's uh, really very informative. Thanks so much, Jim. Okay, thank you. Next, we're going to be joined by Christopher DeBodisco. Christopher is an assistant professor of economics and and an environmental economist at Stetson University. Christopher, can you tell us what you're working on? Uh, my work centers on the impact of sea level rise on residential property values and on public policy responses. So what type of uh, policies can, can coastal communities adapt, adopt to mitigate some of the worst effects of sea level rise? 
And what kind of reception do you get as you go around and talk to different groups about this? Um, It's a little bit mixed. Um, The the people that give us the best reception are the, the hardcore workers who see their drain pipes actually not flowing like they used to, or the people that see water in places that they did not see water 10 years ago. Those people actually have physical evidence that things have already changed. Others are more optimistic, and they say, no, you know, we think that we can muddle through. I haven't seen these changes myself, and so, you know, they they discount some of these long-term future risks. Clay, do you have questions? What do you think about Chris's work? Well, Chris, you're you're in the dollar and cents uh, mode. I mean, a lot of us talk about uh, the economic uh, uh, consequences of environmental actions. You're right in the middle of it. Um, you know, state like Florida, where 80 percent of our population is within 15 uh, miles of the shoreline, uh, are, are these million dollar numbers or billion dollar numbers? Yeah, they're billion, billion, hundred billion dollar numbers, really. And and that is what my main concern is. My main concern is pocketbook issues. You know, I see two things that are absolutely certain from this. One is that state and local governments will have to be spending more money. They're going to spend more money to repair and raise roads, to replace drainage systems, um, to maybe build seawalls. And those things are certain, even if they don't necessarily have to um, cover for failed insurance companies or for higher insurance costs. Those are likely, but they're not certain. But certainly states will be spending more money, and they may have to be trying to raise that money from a smaller tax base. Maybe property values are lower along the coast, so that people have less ability to pay taxes. Um, tourism may be affected. So another source of tax revenue may be smaller. So those are some you know, statewide concerns that affect people even if they're not living on the coast. We were just talking with uh, Jim Murley down in South Florida, and they were uh, he was quantifying some of those things that you were just discussing, that our uh, stormwater systems, drainage systems, and wastewater systems were all put in, uh, you know, basically at working with gravity. And now uh, with sea level rise, uh, they're not functioning the way they used to work, and the capital improvements required to fix this are an order of magnitude of billions of dollars. Yeah, they're huge. And where's that money going to come from? Uh, you know, and for me, the sooner we start recognizing those costs, A, the lower they'll be, and B, the more time we'll have to spread those costs out. So to me, it's, it really is a conservative issue in the sense that, you know, we, we need to be buying insurance now so that we don't have catastrophic price increases or tax increases down the road. So you're saying better to prepare now and... and pay less than to keep putting it off and perhaps face more costly measures. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, another type of concern I have is just for families. I see, you know, potentially millions of homeowners who will be financially underwater long before they're actually underwater from sea level rise. Um, You know, my concern is that as flood levels, flooding incidences increase, You know, even an identical hurricane that we've had in the past, if it's sitting on a higher body of water, it will lift more water and it's going to be dumping more water on communities that have um, less drainage capacity. And so flooding incidents from identical hurricanes will be higher, which means insurance costs will be higher. 
which means that some people's property values are going to go down. And, you know, as we saw in the housing crisis, um, once housing prices start to go down, there's an incentive to get your house on the market quick. And so suddenly you could have in some areas, some isolated areas, you could have, uh, you know, a bunch of people put their house on the market. And that means that's going to drive prices down further. And um, suddenly people can find themselves, you know, not being able to sell their house for what they owe on it. Um, and that's a very painful situation. And even for the people that are lucky enough to sell their house, the person that bought their house is going to soon be in that situation. So for for society, some of this is going to be unavoidable, and there will be people who are, you know, literally underwater on these things, unless banks stop lending on those types of houses. So, and even that will have its own high, you know, adaptive adaptive costs to it. So there's a, there's a lot that we're going to have to get ready to adjust to. And it looks like that some people, I think, are tendency to have a tendency to think this may be 2100 when we're thinking about this. But based on what we know from NOAA's latest studies and some of the work from Jason Evans and others, that this is not going to be an issue that we're thinking about in 75 years. It's more an issue we're going to be thinking about in 20 or 30 years. Exactly. And the, the strange thing about markets is when do they tip? Right? No one's good at predicting those tipping points. But just imagine a community that gets hit by some floods. And so then people in that community panic or, or maybe justifiably react to it. I don't even call it panic. They say, oh, no, insurance costs are going to spike here. We've got to get out. And so some of those people put their houses up on the market. Quite a few of them put their houses on the market. You start driving housing prices down just in that local area. And then people in that area are going to experience that sort of, of – um, cascading price effect that we saw in the recession. And it's going to be spotty. And who knows when it's going to hit any individual market. We don't know. It's, it depends on people's expectations and, 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 frankly, emotions in many cases. Very interesting. Well, thank you, Chris, very much for your, for your input here this afternoon. We really appreciate it. You've certainly given us some things to think about. Well, thank you very much for asking me. It's, uh, I'm very interested in it, and it's something that's very important, I think, to all Floridians. Thanks so much. We'll be talking with you again as we go forward with the series, I'm sure. Well, thank you very much, and, and be sure to keep me uh, uh, involved in the loop, and uh, I'm happy to participate whenever you like. Okay, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Nancy. I'm glad you were available on this Friday afternoon. Oh, it, it's, I'm delighted. I, if it's you, level rise, I'm happy to talk about it. Next, we're going to be joined by I can Saint just Augustine imagine, Mayor so Nancy Tell me, Shaver. Nancy, there in St. Augustine, how how this first came to your attention and how you became interested in sea level rise there in the nation's oldest city. You have an interesting story to tell. Yes, well, I, I do neighborhood walks. And I, I right after I was elected, I did a walk in a low-lying neighborhood here. And one of the residents pointed to a stormwater drain and said, you know, we have sea urchins in these drains. And that was a, a big aha moment for me. I realized that we had salt water intruding into our stormwater outfalls. And that unless, quite frankly, we wanted sea urchins as a cash crop, uh, for our city, we needed to start thinking seriously about understanding what problem we had and what we needed to do about it. Thank you. So what is St. Augustine doing about it? 
Well, we, we really are one of three cities in Florida that w- were able to be selected for a pilot planning program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a sea level rise study uh, independent of that, and then we're uh, lucky enough, uh, a city dropped out. And so we now have a platform that shows us exactly what our sea level rise vulnerability is on a street-by-street basis in our city. And uh, as the NOAA models or other models adjust or there's different data, um, our platform adjusts right along with it. And then the third piece is that we've just completed, we don't have, I've seen the draft, but we don't have the final report of our vulnerability analysis. And no surprise uh, to us, the our wastewater treatment plant, which sits at the end of Maria Sanchez Creek, um, is incredibly vulnerable, and we have to start rethinking how we're going to manage wastewater treatment in our city. And that's going to be costly. Oh, goodness. It, it's one of those things. You talk about keep you up at night. We have a $50 million annual budget, and our rough back-of-the-envelope estimate on this is something north of $100 million. And... Um, I actually was just listening to a webinar um, where there were for some alternatives about sea level rise financing that may be on the horizon, green bonds, sea level rise derivatives. Um, it's just a big ticket for any coastal city, and all of us are vulnerable. Thank you. And what sort of response are you getting to this from some of the residents that you come in contact with on a daily basis? You know, it's really interesting. I think, um, obviously, uh, using the word climate change is kind of like hitting a third rail these days. Um, But when you're talking about the practical matter of running a city and people being able to flush their toilets, um, that really resonates with people. Um, I've talked to a number of different groups with very different political stripes, and everyone seems to really understand that this is... This is a problem to solve, and it's what we expect our government to do. Well, plus you got to see a preview of coming events uh, with Hurricane Andrew last fall. Uh, but yeah, it was yeah, the uh, highest uh, storm surge yeah. ever recorded there. Yes, it was 7 feet 4 inches, and it really did... Um, I think it really did make people understand what it might feel like as sea level rise becomes a reality. And we also are experiencing many more of what are called, ironically, I think, sunny day flooding or nuisance flooding. Um, Every time there's a full moon and a high tide, and uh, we're experiencing flooding in our downtown streets. And those are back away from, are those on the water or back away from the water? It's actually back away from the water. It's really in central, the central city, uh, right uh, where Flagler College is or um, where our city hall is. That's consistent with the things we're hearing all up and down the East Coast, that actually where you're going to see the, uh, the biggest effect early would be interior as drainage areas just can't get back out to the, uh, to the coast. And so the flooding will build up first uh, in the interior. 
Well, and it's actually for us, and when we look at our maps and, and see what our city looks like, part of our city, including Flagler College and including our city hall, was built on filter. Henry Flagler filled in Maria Sanchez Creek. And what happens with sea level rise is those are the areas that become ex- extremely vulnerable, just as in Hurricane Matthew, Davis Shores, which is a neighborhood across the Bridge of Lyons, was hit very hard by Hurricane Matthew, and it is also the area that when we look at, at our mapping, that is another, and it was all fill. It was a development in, I believe, the 40s. Uh, actually earlier than that, 20s, where no one really thought very much about whether you should use fill or not. And that's a very vulnerable area as well. Now, Clay, you're just coming off as the president of the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. And Nancy, you're there with with these incredible historic resources. What does it mean for history when you talk about flooding occurring there around Flagler College? It is really, it is, it is a devastating loss of really our nation's history. Um, we, uh, Flagler College actually had a series of lectures last year, and one of them was about uh, historic preservation and sea level rise and some of the, the, the concerns that, that, that rise around that. I mean, losing those pieces of history is something no one wants to see. We uh, we took that on that kind of show on the road uh, after that program in San Augustine. Uh, we did uh, one in downtown Sarasota and then a third out uh, in Pensacola, mm-hmm. and it was very interesting to see the differences between you know and the communities is how they were responding. Uh, Sarasota had not yet been experiencing uh, king tides or nuisance events, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, um, uh, Pensacola has been ground zero. For for so many tropical storms and hurricanes over the last decade that they were uh, keenly aware of uh, some of the risks to uh, historic neighborhoods and historic properties uh, in their downtown. It, it is really interesting. It's, it's, I think it's human nature to not really think this is going to happen until you get a taste of it. Mm-hmm. Very um, interesting. It's, just, it's hard to imagine that the landscape as you know it is going to change pretty radically in a relatively short period of time. It's just human nature. It's hard hard to get your head around it. I think I think it is. And when you listen to some of the NOAA the NOAA projections you realize that perhaps we are going to be looking at it sooner in some areas than people had anticipated. Oh, I think so. Well, and, and, and full disclosure, my daughter is a marine biologist at, at NOAA. She's not in the sea level rise area, but she is in ocean acidification. So this is something that's um, been something I've been aware of, obviously, for a long time. But it's very, being aware of it abstractly and intellectually is really different than uh, feeling responsible for a city and needing to make sure that, that the services can be delivered and that we do the right things in terms of adapting to what is going to be clearly the biggest challenge we we face. Well, thank you so much, Mayor Shaver. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for being available. And we um we watch for our stories as the as the year goes forward. We are going to be looking at historic preservation and some of the challenges facing the people around the state who are trying to preserve our historic resources. 
That will be great. I'll be on the lookout for it. And I'm actually heading this weekend to the Resiliency Summit in Vermont. So it's uh, be, time to I'm head sure. to the hills. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. Thanks. I hope to bring back some some actionable ideas that, that can help us uh, not have to head to the hills too soon. Thanks so much. <laughs> thank you, Nancy. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. We've been joined now by... Christopher DiBadisco from Stetson University, who's talking about some of their work on sea level rise and planning ahead. And we've spoken with Jim Murley, the Chief Resilience Officer for Miami-Dade County, and Nancy Shaver, the Mayor of St. Augustine. They've all touched on issues that we're going to be looking at as we move forward with this series over the next year. Reporters from the Northwest Florida Daily News, the Sarasota Herald Tribune, and the Gainesville Sun are all working with the News Journal on exploring aspects of how rising seas are going to be impacting life for Floridians in the years to come. And we're talking also here in the studio with Clay Henderson, who is the Executive Director of Stetson University's Institute for Environmental Resilience, Water and Environmental Resilience. And Clay, what do you think we have to look forward to as we go forward well it's interesting listening to um the the folks that we've been talking to here lately is it's all been about dollars if you think about it the impacts to the community that have to be uh repaired uh the impacts that uh, the community in the future for infrastructure that's going to have to be replaced and and so it's really about planning and nobody likes to talk about planning but but what we're doing now is reacting to the new data that we have uh we've all learned a lot from hurricanes both on the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast last year. We got to see new benchmarks for storm surge both in the Gulf and in the Atlantic. Uh, We have new data on um, uh, normal tide levels and nuisance tide levels. And so it's requiring us to rethink how we look at uh, flood levels. Uh, Most all of our communities have been planned with the knowledge of where base flood is and 100-year flood uh, uh, lines are. But you can throw that out the window. Uh, All this is going to have to be adjusted and it's going to have impacts on all of our coastal residents. But as these uh, folks we've been talking to have been very clear, it's going to be billions of dollars of impact for all of our local governments all up and down the East Coast. Yes, it is. That's one of the one of the stories that we're working on for the the near future is a story about planning and preparation and what cities and local governments are doing to prepare and how much it's going to cost. And it is certainly going to be expensive. We're also looking at housing insurance and we'll be doing a story talking about how insurance is going to be affecting people who are trying to you know insure their homes and and, and their properties and it looks like there are going to be some pretty major impacts there for people as well. Thank you so much for joining us. We encourage you to continue looking at your local newspaper with the Gatehouse Media Florida newspapers as we'll all be featuring these stories over the coming year and we encourage you to get in touch with us and let us know what you think and let us know what your thoughts are and how you think sea level rise may be impacting you in the years to come. Thank you so much. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. 
Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.